0: Good morning, everyone. It is good to be here with you. I I love a story for all ages when there are no kids present. It's like literally my favorite thing. (laughs) One, because I think it's fun for us to just be silly when there aren't kids around. I think it's like a good practice. But I also think it's just an extremely welcoming gesture, right? There's always this like tug, like this kind of pull and conflict between do you build a service in a church for who's there or do you build a service in a church for who you want to be there and i think it's a difficult question but i think just making it clear that this is a place that's always welcoming for people of all ages and all attention spans and all moods i think is great so i love a story for all ages when there's zero kids (laughs) so that was really fun thank you frank so i am um i've graduated i am much more well rested and tanned <laughs> than the last time you saw me <laughs> in like a much better place. Um, in part, I just returned from a very much needed uh, two week long post-graduation trip for some rest and relaxation with my wife. Uh, we spent some time paddleboarding and just kind of drinking rum down in the Florida Keys uh, and then made our way a bit more north to a beach outside of Charleston to meet my family for vacation. And it was a really, really lovely, very needed, relaxing trip. Um, But there's this one thing that happened on the trip that kind of stood out to me as I was thinking about what to preach about today, Um, and one day as my wife and I were walking along the beach when we made our way up to South Carolina, Uh, we began to kind of dream about eventually having our own vacation home somewhere, right? Just walking and kind of fantasizing, said maybe once I'm through with the ministerial formation process and we're settled somewhere permanently, we have two paychecks, we could begin maybe saving and planning. We dreamed of a place where we could come right whenever we wanted it for long weekends or sabbatical stints or study leave. I imagined like a cup of coffee and writing a sermon as I like stared out at the ocean. And it began as just kind of a small cottage or one bedroom condo that was all we thought we needed. But then the dream grew, right? We're like maybe we should get a bigger house so we can invite friends, start a new Fourth of July tradition where we host all the people we love. We like. I had to imagine this whole scenario where a friend's kids like grow up making memories, going to Aunt Marie and Danielle's summer home. And if that was the case, then like, would we want a pool? We might want a pool, right, if we were gonna like... <laughs> and then it would be so fun to have like an old Jeep Wrangler down to at use at the beach, right? So the like fantasy just kept growing and kept growing. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with this fantasy, right? I can justify it pretty easily. It's not a dream for like immense power or riches. We just wanted a little place of respite and retreat and community somewhere by the ocean where we could enjoy nature. But I think the problem with this fantasy wasn't its substance, but it was in the feeling that it created while we were talking about it. It brought up this kind of longing, this lingering dissatisfaction, this emphasis on what it was that we didn't have while we were right there supposedly enjoying the thing that we wanted, right? We were at the beach, we were with family, we were enjoying a walk by the ocean on a beautiful day, and all we could talk about was how we wanted more of it, wanted it under better circumstances. And I like, looked out at the ocean and I asked my wife, I said, what is it about us as humans that makes us want to own something beautiful, right? To see something beautiful and be like, I need that, for mine. Why wasn't like that right there in that moment what we were doing enough for us. And I thought about the Mary Oliver poem, it was early. She writes, it was early, which has always been my hour to begin looking at the world. And of course, even in the darkness to begin listening into it, especially under the pines where the owl lives and sometimes calls out as I walk by as he did this morning. So many gifts, what do they mean? In the marshes where the pink light was just arriving, the mink with his bristled tail was stalking the soft-eared mice, and in the pines, the cones were heavy, each one ordained to open. Sometimes I need only to stand wherever I am to be blessed. Little mink, let me watch you. Little mice, run and run. Dear pinecone, let me hold you as you open sometimes i need only to stand wherever i am to be blessed it is a really lovely sentiment but i think we live in a world hell-bent on convincing us that there is something just a little lacking about where we're standing not altogether bad or wrong but just slightly in need of improvement an upgrade a remodel a new addition Better skin or a thinner body while we're standing there and better company to stand with. Just some small adjustments, then I'll know that I am blessed. I think this is exactly what was so kind of insidious about this longing for this modest beach cottage. It was its perceivable attainability, right? I wasn't fantasizing about a yacht or moving into Beyonce and Jay-Z's mansion. I was fantasizing about something that people I know have that with some good luck and some good financial planning, I actually believed I could have, which just made that dissatisfaction with not having it all the more palpable. And the beach house dream and the dissatisfaction with not having it were fleeting and admittedly really self-indulgent. But when I got home from vacation, I was reminded of all of the ways, some small and some larger, that the same phenomenon manifests in our lives every day. So subscribe to this newsletter by a former academic turned cultural critic, Anne Helen Peterson. And her newsletter last week, right after I got home from vacation, was titled, The Optimization Sinkhole. What if there's no such thing as the perfect coffee maker? Right? (laughs) And in the newsletter, Peterson kind of unpacked our seemingly endless quest for that one product or one tip or one life hack or purchase that is finally going to fix our lives make us happy, make us better organized, or healthier, or better looking, a better parent, our partner, or person. And right there are entire industries devoted to this. Like Wirecutter promises to help us choose the very best coffee maker or Bluetooth speaker, HGTV sells home improvement aspirations. I'm like, if I just put enough shiplap on my wall, maybe my hair will be as shiny as Joanna Gaines's. <laughs> and I'll seem as Right relaxed and confident like raising chickens and canning vegetables and making these like perfect cupcakes. <laughs> Our social media feeds are inundated with Instagram influencers demonstrating a life-changing product or the recent, I don't know how many people are on TikTok, but there's this recent like TikTok trend of videos that are like, you're doing it wrong and they promote everything from like the best way to cut a mango to like financial planning advice. Um, but they're always convincing us that whatever we're currently doing is just completely lacking and unsatisfactory. So there are lots of people making lots of money off of our belief that if we could just figure out that one puzzle piece, we'll be happy and content and successful. But so often, like my experience ignoring the beautiful beach in front of me as I fantasized about my future beach house, the constant search for something better diminishes our enjoyment of what we already have. In this newsletter, Peterson writes, the quest for the best are the hack that will actually make some part of our life less cumbersome. There's a veil of dissatisfaction over our days. I look around the room and I see a laundry basket in need of optimization, an unsatisfactory rug, houseplants that should be growing more. I need better Tupperware, a kitchen remodel, some trick to clean my exterior windows that isn't just me spending hours cleaning my exterior windows. Instead of looking around my living space with gratitude for the soft comfort I've built for myself, inflect it with my peculiar taste and preferences, I see lack and that dissatisfaction becomes sort of a lingering fog, dampening my experience of the world. So the problem feels clear, but I think the answer feels a little bit harder. Like, is it really just to be grateful for what you already have? I mean, like one that's so much easier said than done, right? Like, how do we just force ourselves to feel gratitude in an economy that operates by convincing us that we never have enough? But even if we could figure out how to do it, even if we could just magically make ourselves always feel grateful for what we have, or stick religiously to that gratitude practice or gratitude journal. I feel like that phrase is so easily misused and abused, especially against marginalized folks, right? Throughout history, that phrase has been used to guilt people into complacency, to make folks feel greedy for fighting for basic equality and human rights, to convince people to stay in abusive relationships or step away from dreams and ambitions, that others deem inconvenient. Right, you already got marriage equality, just be grateful, stop pushing the whole trans rights thing. Or you should be grateful you have a job at all, stop whining about equal pay. You have a good husband and beautiful children, why do you wanna go back to school? Often the language is coded in really racist and sexist ways. Women and people of color who aren't complacent are accused of being overly ambitious or uppity be quiet, be grateful, stop agitating, know your place. But at a time where democracy and LGBTQ rights, racial justice and reproductive freedoms are all under attack, we cannot afford complacency. There are times where it is good and right to ask for, to fight for, to demand more, to not be satisfied with what we have. Right? A gratitude journal is no antidote for systemic inequality and threats to human flourishing. It's difficult to stand where you are and be blessed if where you're standing isn't safe. So then I think the big question that I come to is how do we seek contentment but not complacency? How do we know the difference? Right? How do we resist the planned obsolescence and manufactured dissatisfaction of late stage capitalism while still leaving rooms for big dreams and big changes? I think these are really, really deep spiritual questions that touch on our very purpose on this planet. I think answering them means defining our fundamental values and identifying our moral obligations. So I recognize I went from very small to very big like really quickly. There's like maybe 10 minutes between trying to find the perfect coffee maker won't make you happy and what is your purpose on this planet? (laughs) And I don't want us to, like, all enter into this deep existential crisis every time we need to buy a new coffee maker. <laughs> but also, like, I think that's kind of already what we're doing a little bit, right? Like, I know I've had total meltdowns trying to pick out a new appliance or, like, buy a new bathing suit. <laughs> because this stuff is never actually about the thing itself, the coffee maker, the beach house, right? There's always something deeper behind it. And Anne Helen Peterson writes... Productivity culture thrives during economic downturns. Organization culture takes off for parents, particularly mothers, of young children. Beauty and wellness culture explodes in your early 30s. Home remodel culture starts in your late 30s and continues for decades. She says peaking, I'd argue, in the years after kids leave the home. All times, of course, when control is fleeting. Yet instead of directing attention and energy towards the sort of structures, that can make us feel less insecure, whether unions or deeper friendships or school year reform. We focus it on the self and the space around it, but no amount of personal renovation can satisfy this type of lack. I think getting to a place where we're content where we are but know when to fight for what we need requires us to identify, articulate, and regularly return to our deepest, most fundamental values things that are more lasting and solid than happiness or even gratitude. And I think we need to do this like really literally. I mean actually take time to kind of sit and meditate and discern, think about what your deepest values are, articulate them in a way that feels really concrete and then write them down somewhere. One way to do this is to create a rule of life. And this isn't a new idea, in fact it's a very old one, but. I came to it by way of my daily planner. So last year I purchased the Sacred Ordinary Days Planner, which became like really popular among Divinity School students. Um, It's a planner that kind of integrates spiritual practices and a liturgical calendar into your to-do list and meetings and promises to help you prioritize what really matters. Right, ironically, this was one of those purchases I was convinced was going to solve everything in my life, <laughs> as though like, the problem was where I wrote down my schedule and not the like, sheer number of things in the schedule to begin with. <laughs> and it, so it did not solve all my problems, but it was not without its benefits, and it included a section for developing your personal rule of life. And the folks at Sacred Ordinary Days explain that a rule of life dates back 1,500 years to Benedict of Nursia, the founder of the Benedictine monastic communities, they define a rule of life as a commitment to live in a certain way. Once written, your rule of life serves as a tool to help you make decisions for your life and determine how best to order your days. Our English word rule is derived from the Latin regula, meaning a straight piece of wood, a ruler, and by extension, a pattern, model, or example. Esther de a longtime student of monastic spirituality writes that regula, a feminine noun, carries gentle connotations, a signpost, a railing, something that gives me support as I move forward in my search of God. It is comprised of several simple statements that guide the posture of your life and the living of your days. It is not lived perfectly, but can be lived faithfully while fostering within you an integrated and embodied life of faith. In this way, I think it's very much like our UU principles, both in current and whatever potential future iterations we decide. It, right, it's like an adaptable framework, but rooted in that which we find most unchangeably secret. And this rule of life language might not work for you, and that's okay, but the point is to take the time to really sit with and meditate on your core values. How you need to live for your soul to be at peace. Articulate them and write them down somewhere. You can return to them with regularity and revise them if necessary. And then do actually return to them with regularity. Maybe that means setting up a monthly family meeting or setting aside 15 minutes each week to journal. Take time to weigh your life and your decisions against your rule. Check in with yourself and your loved ones, your family or community. Ask yourself if you are making decisions, prioritizing things in line with those values. When you feel a sense of dissatisfaction or discontent, a longing, or the need to fix something in your life, ask yourself, what is it that's driving that feeling? Are you being pushed in the direction of greater liberation, deeper community, more love, or expansive imagination? Are you being driven towards power, status, perfectionism, and control? And if that feels hard to answer at first, try asking yourself, who is benefiting from your discontent? Who is profiting from it? Right? When I feel discontent with my weight or my appearance, for example, I might buy new clothes and download new exercise apps and nutrition bars. So fast fashion brands with unethical labor practices might benefit, or maybe wellness apps that are routinely marketing themselves to teenage girls and threatening their self-esteem, right? Those folks are profiting, they're benefiting. But my community isn't benefiting, and usually I'm not either. But what if I feel discontent with graduate student wages at school, for example? If I decide to act on that feeling of discontent, maybe my friends and classmates struggling to stay afloat and complete their studies will benefit. Now not every example will be this clear cut, but it's a start at least. My hope is that this deliberate framework will help us recognize when it's the forces of capitalism or sexism or racism that are convincing us that we don't have enough, that we aren't enough, as a way to turn a profit or consolidate their power. It provides a space to ask, is something actually lacking in my life? And if it is, will paying Apple another thousand bucks actually fix it? When I return to my own rule of life, when I tune out the Instagram reels and targeted ads and listen to what the still small voice says I actually need, I often look around and see beauty and abundance rather than lack. I often look around and see that. But not always, right? Which is why I'm embarking on an entirely new career at age 37. Because returning to our deepest values rather than just forcing a surface level gratitude practice leaves open the possibility for change, action, and agitation, for unionizing coworkers or testifying at legislative hearings, for taking up a new artistic hobby late in life for following a new vocation. It helps us to seek contentment, but leaves no room for mindless complacency. And I know this feels like a really big thing, right? Even the term rule of life feels kind of overwhelming. But I think taking this time to discern, identify, articulate, and occasionally return to our deepest, most fundamental values can help us make some of these small questions so much easier. Let's take Anne Helen Peterson's perfect coffee pot example. So I deeply value community and hospitality. One thing in my rule of life is that we never turn away anyone who asks to stay at our house unless we have a very, very good reason. More people have a key to our house than probably should if I'm being honest and I'm gonna to have to figure out how to get those all back before we move. <laughs> our guest room is a frequent resting place for traveling friends and this past year has been a frequent stop for commuter classmates who need a closer place to stay during long on-call overnight chaplaincy shifts at the Vanderbilt Hospital. And I absolutely adore coming downstairs in the morning in a sweatshirt, still kind of waking up and finding a friend at the counter with a cup of coffee. I love settling in, taking the morning slow and hearing about how their shift went. Now a comfy guest room and a working coffee pot are very helpful here, but a fancier coffee pot that makes macchiatos or a new designer comforter on the guest bed aren't going to help me connect with my friends anymore or make them feel more welcome in my home. What we have is enough. It is enough for us, and it's enough for our beloved guest. I can stand where I am in the morning in a home full of warmth and welcome, drinking my regular old drip coffee, and know that I am blessed. I wish the same for you, my friends. May it be so, and amen.